morning comes from Zechariah chapter 1, the second of Zechariah's night visions. We begin reading at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? He said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Having heard this reading of God's word, let's ask God's blessing upon it. Will you pray with me? O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Give us faith to believe these words and rest upon them. And help us not merely to be hearers of the word, but doers as well, we ask by your Spirit. And I pray the Spirit of Christ might help me to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we pray all these things in His name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you're a University of Central Florida fan, as I know at least Glenn's daughter must be, and perhaps some others, the good news is you scored 14 points yesterday. And that would be enough to win many football games. The only caveat to that is that the other team on the field, the University of Michigan, go Big Blue, scored 51 points. So what could have been a win, theoretically, turned out to be a loss. Well, this is a reality, isn't it, that um, if it weren't for the opposition, winning would be easy. And we could win all the time. You know, when we think of the things of God, we think of the kingdom of God, we think of walking by faith, we think of being a follower of Christ and all the things that uh, are encompassed in the Christian life. It would be easy if there was no opposition. (laughs) But the reality is, and this is the reality to which the Scriptures open our eyes, is that there is opposition. There is a kingdom which is opposed to God's reign, to God's rule. Since the day our first parents uh, listened to the serpent in the garden, uh, Satan and uh, his influence has, uh, has uh, had its effect on the world, and tragically. And we even think about that when we think of September 11. It's, uh, it's the whole basis on which we cry out, as we learned last week, it's the whole basis on which we cry out, How long, O Lord? How long will it be until your victory? Your victory over indwelling sin, so that we don't do the things we don't want to do, and that we do the things we don't want to do or whether it's victory over sickness and death, or victory over evil in general in the world, so that the world becomes a peaceful and a righteous place. Well, Zechariah brings good news for us. In the second of his night visions, he tells us that God's victory necessarily involves the defeat of God's enemies. And if we look to God's unfailing promises, 
we'll be able to have confidence that God will prevail in His way and in His time, and His way and His time will be glorious. And we can see that essentially with the two parties to this vision. And uh, we see uh, two figures revealed in the night vision. The one uh, figure, or figures, if you will, are four horns. And the other figures are four craftsmen. And in the end, we'll learn that it's carpenters who come to the rescue, or shall we say even cabinet makers, um, and others who are skilled to build something but building must begin by tearing down. So let's look to what God tells us about His victory, not just in the abstract, but His victory against the powers that oppose Him so that it will be truly good news to us. Uh, when we look, first of all, at the craftsmen, I'm sorry, at the horns, we're going to be reminded, as we've been reminded already in Zechariah's prophecies, that God keeps His promises that God keeps His promises, and with respect to the horns, He will defeat all His and our enemies, as our catechism teaches us that He has done in Christ. Because God keeps His promises, He will defeat all His and our enemies. Let's look to the vision to see how this is so. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, this marks the beginning of another vision. This is a second of seven night visions we will be looking at over the course of time. And I saw and behold four horns. And yes, uh, the horns that you might find on a wild beast, not horns like in the lovely clarinet or uh, the trombone which sits in my closet at home. These are horns, uh, the, the principal weapons of wild beasts. And the prophet has the assistance of our friend, the interpreting angel, the one we met last week who explained about the horsemen. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Judah. And God is going to address these four horns with a solution of the four craftsmen. But let's understand what the four horns are. As I said, uh, the, uh, the horn here is, is the, uh, the principal weapon of a, of a wild beast. It's the weapon of an aggressive animal. And there's a background to this. Uh, if you know the book of Daniel a little bit, you'll remember uh, Daniel had a, uh, a vision of four horns. And these were four kings. Uh, and uh, they are kings who, uh, in Daniel's uh, prophecies, uh, kings whose empires were opposed to God's people, uh, but that what God would deal with in time. Uh, they could be uh, specific nations uh, that Zechariah's hearers would have in mind. Uh, in, uh, in the 8th century, uh, uh, the, the, the empire of Assyria defeated and took into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, you read about that in, uh, in, uh, in First and Second Kings. And uh, then in uh, about 150 years after that, uh, there was a Babylonian empire 
uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's nemesis, who uh, took into captivity the southern kingdom of Judah. And so there were these great empires that had acted under God's providence to administer God's uh, discipline against His people because they had broken covenant. But remember, we saw uh, last week in the vision uh, of the four horse of the four groups of horsemen that they had overdone it. They had they had seized opportunity to do more than God had purposed in them, and they had brutalized and held captive and shamed and enslaved God's people. We even uh, learned from the prophet Obadiah that. Uh, Israel's cousin, the Edomites, descendants of Esau, had also taken advantage of God's people in their weakness. Uh, But why four horns? Uh, Well, uh, when we're in the uh, kind of book of the Bible we're in, uh, apocalyptic uh, is the term used to describe books like Daniel and Zechariah and the book of Revelation, we're already in the land of symbolism. So why four? Well, uh, four is a number of universality. Uh, last week we talked about the four groups of horsemen that uh, perhaps meant that uh, God's patrols had gone out to all the parts of the earth. They had surveyed the whole landscape. The four points of the compass, maybe, as we might think today. And so, uh, in addressing these horns, God is addressing universal opposition to himself, not just pocketed, not just targeted, but, but all those who stand against him and his people. But uh, again, delving a little bit into Daniel's background behind Zechariah, uh, these horns were blasphemous. They weren't simply enemies of God's people, but they were uh, blasphemous enemies who claim for themselves uh, the glory of the nations, the glory of the world. They, they made claims against God, sort of like the, the builders of the Tower of Babel did, when they said, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower which is up to heaven. Uh, just a, a side comment on this, this background of Daniel. You can think of the book of Zechariah as something like a, a turnbuckle. If you've ever looked at a great suspension bridge, you'll see the cables that come up uh, severally from the deck of a bridge, but those cables all come together to a central place uh, around which uh, uh, a a turnbuckle will grasp all those cables and hold them centrally. Zechariah is a lot like this. it's It's like a bad merge. What is that merge called north of Atlanta, the the uh, where 85 and 75 come together, and that's that place you always have to stop and look at the scenery. Well, you've got all these threads of Old Testament coming together in Zechariah's prophecies, and Daniel is no doubt uh, part of that uh, behind uh, Zechariah's prophecies. You've got all these themes coming together such that we don't just see the powers of the nations being opposed by God here, but we also see their idolatrous, their blasphemous claims, sort of like a four-horned altar, possibly even. That God is not simply going to overthrow His enemies, but He's going to cast them down because of their claims to be and do only what God Himself can do. And it's true, these nations had come against God's people. Uh, we read that in the Old Testament history, and in fact, in many places in the book of Zechariah afterwards, when we get into chapters 9, 10, 11, and even in 13, God's people are depicted as a flock, the, uh, a flock of sheep who are vulnerable to wild animals. 
And so these horned beasts had, had, had taken advantage, had victimized, had, as I said, enslaved God's people. And they were like sheep without a shepherd, apart from God's care. Uh, Psalm 74 is all about this. It's possibly, possible even that Zechariah is uh, thinking of refrains from Psalm 74, where uh, God is celebrated as the one who, who broke the head of the great sea monster, the deep. Uh, although his people had been brought to ruin by their enemies, Psalm 74 says, and uh, they, those enemies are depicted there as animals. So there's a lot of themes that come together here. They even defiled God's dwelling place, according to Psalm 74. We know that's an issue here as well. In the very next vision, we're going to talk about, we're going to see at least, how God's high priest had been shamed. And he was not suitable or acceptable to stand in the presence of God in the temple. They had torn the temple down. This is one of the great concerns of Zechariah uh, in, 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 the, in that shadow land, as I described, at that gray time between the end of exile and the rebuilding of the temple. Would God's presence return? This is the great theme of Zechariah. Would God once again dwell with his people? And let he would be their God and they would be his people and he would dwell in their midst. And uh, there's, there's a, a great application for us in this to understand that God is not unattentive to the opposition that exists against him in the world. That God's eye is on the ball, as we learned last week, with the world all at rest when there was great injustice waiting to be remedied. So, what's God's solution? Well, it's for craftsmen. It's Carpenters 911. Let's continue reading. Verse 20, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the four horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. That is, Judah was cast down utterly. His people scattered And these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. What have these craftsmen come to do? They've come to terrorize the four horns. They've come to terrorize the powers that raise themselves up against God and His purposes. As a more of a generic word here for craftsman, it's not plumber, it's not carpenter, it's not uh, blacksmith. Uh, it's a generic word that would include skilled craftsmen, carpenters and smiths and, and, and many others. And in Zechariah's vision, they are presented as the skilled wrecking crew. Uh, I'm sure you have, uh, probably as I have on uh, the home channel or other places, uh, I've been a big fan of uh, this old house for many years. How does rebuilding begin? Uh, well, our uh, contractors simply call it a tear-out. And uh, you drive in your driveway one day and you see there's a dumpster parked in your driveway. And soon that dumpster will be filled with all the things that you paid for at one time in the past. It will eventually be filled with uh, colors like olive appliances, 
And that orange that is now back in vogue is clothing that we wouldn't consider installing permanently in our homes again. But you see, Zechariah is being told by God and Zechariah is reporting to the people of God that God is sending a wrecking crew to tear down what has been built up against him. And this is... uh, Consistent with God's purpose throughout time. In the, in the wilderness, just after the exodus from Egypt, there was a, a skilled craftsman named Bezalel who was full of the Holy Spirit, and it was his skill and his craftsmanship that went into the building of the tabernacle. And in the days of Solomon, when God would be pleased to dwell in a temple made out of stone, that God raised up, Hiram, the king of Lebanon, to assist Solomon with his skill, his acumen, his craftsmanship. You know, we we oftentimes are looking for a warrior to ride over the hill. If you've uh, seen the movie version of uh, Tolkien's uh, The the Two Towers, you'll remember that moment when uh, an army of white-mounted horsemen comes over the hill to rescue those who have been oppressed. We, we, uh, we, we look for the, for the cavalry to come over the hill, and, and, and yet God has a different idea of how He's going to tear down and build because He's going to tear down and build with craftsmen, with temple builders, because it is His promise and His purpose to return to dwell among His people. And they are going to put to shame and defeat those self-important kings of the nations. Isaiah speaks to this so eloquently in Isaiah chapter 40. And it's good to remember on observances of things like September 11th or thinking about politics and thinking about war in the world. What does Isaiah say? One of those influences behind Zechariah's prophecies. Isaiah God spoke through Isaiah to say in chapter 40, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are nothing before him. Isaiah said, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? He is the one who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is where we are called to believe God's word, to trust God's word, that God will and can in an instant and as He pleases and according to His purposes uproot every kingdom that is opposed to Him. And there is great benefit in this. The great benefit for us in this is to know that vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. You know, uh, when, we, when we start to walk by sight and not by faith, we begin to uh, designate the enemies of God. And we begin to uh, do a, our version of uh, of a fantasy football league where we're picking teams. And we decide who is on our team and who is on the opposing team. And the 
the, the, the sadness of that is we often uh, designate those who are enemies whom God would make friends of his. Uh, and um, this is why you've been hearing an excellent series, I think it's still underway, from Mike Allen on the first Peter. To live as elect exiles among the nations and to respond to difficulties, to respond to persecution, to respond to suffering, to respond to injustice in the world as those who are above all things persecuted for doing good and not for doing evil. We always, when we start to sort out God's enemies and friends, we inevitably make wrong choices. And we forget that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Even among the enemies of, of our country uh, that have, uh, have, have arisen in the wake of the last 15 years, there are unprecedented reports of people turning to the Lord, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we wait, we rest in confidence that He will defeat all His and our enemies. And we trust Him that He is in command. John Calvin said, Ignorance of God's providence is the greatest of miseries, and knowledge of it the greatest comfort. And while God's sovereignty can be used as a counsel of uh, aloofness, of, uh, as a cold counsel, as a, as, as a, uh, uh, can be mistaken for, for what other people think of as fate, this is not how the Bible presents to us God's sovereign control because God's sovereign administration of world history is ultimately for His glory... And since it is for His glory, it is also for our good. And so we wait. We watch God prepare the dumpster. We know that He will tear down, that He plucks up as He pleases, and that we can trust that He will accomplish it in the end. But not only do we have confidence in God's promises that He will defeat all His and our enemies... Because God keeps His promises, we must trust God's means as well as His ends. As I said, you know, we look and we see craftsmen and we wonder uh, why God would send craftsmen in the face of these beastly kings and nations which oppose Him. It's because God's ways are not our ways. God establishes His kingdom and He makes war by building a royal dwelling place for himself on earth. Zechariah will say just in a couple of chapters, a verse that is probably very familiar to many of you, not by might, not by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord. Paul says it in the New Testament this way, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against kingdoms and powers and principalities and the dark forces in the heavenly places. So that we must, as Peter commended to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, to entrust our souls to a faithful God in times of suffering. 
But we don't simply have to wait for God to defeat all his and our enemies and trust God's means as well as his ends in the same way that Zechariah's listeners did. Because what Zechariah looked forward to, we now look back upon. 1 Peter chapter 1 describes the prophets of the Old Testament as trying to discern when and how and what the time of Christ's appearing would be. Zechariah, as with all the Old Testament prophets, looked forward to the day when God would begin his building program anew. And it wasn't in a stone temple. It wasn't the temple uh, that Haggai saw. It wasn't the temple that Herod expanded into a great massive stone complex in the days of Jesus. It is a temple based on a cornerstone rejected by men and choice in God's sight. When Christ entered into Jerusalem, he declared an end to stone temples. We're going to see in another night vision later that stone temples can't contain all that God would do in and through Christ. But through the rejected cornerstone, he has made him the foundation of a new temple. And that temple was built then upon foundations laid by the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And now we all who have been called to Him by faith, who have accepted Christ's reconciling work on the cross, and especially His victorious resurrection from the dead, we have seen the beginnings of what Zechariah was waiting for. We have seen God's victory begun. Think of what the New Testament says about this. In John's Gospel, Jesus three times says, As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. The third time he said it, in John chapter 12, he said, Now will the ruler of this world be cast down. In Christ being raised to the cross, you see the overthrow of all empires, all evil. In his resurrection from the dead, Paul in Colossians 1 says that he put to shame all the powers when he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said this in his own life and teaching. He said, no one plunders the strong man except that he first binds him. See, what Jesus is depicting there is that as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as God incarnate, He kicked down the door of Satan's dominion. And not only did He bind the strong man, and He proved this in His, in his miracles over, over, over demons and over sickness and His miracles over nature, He not only bound the strong man, but in that parable that Jesus used about the strong man, he said he stole all his stuff. That God in Christ has stolen what Satan had stolen first from God. And therefore, Paul in Ephesians 1 tells us that God has highly exalted him and seated Christ at the right hand of God. And we see visions of Him in the New Testament reigning with the Father. That beautiful vision of Revelation 5 where the 
Ancient of Days is seated on the throne, and the Lamb standing as if slain, who can open the book and break its seven seals. So, we would not have accomplished a victory in this way. We would have wanted uh, either the 82nd or the 101st Airborne, take your choice. If any uh, former Marines in here, you would have probably had to go in and make it safe for them first. My Marine friends uh, say they, the one thing they tell me or not, whether they were somebody who kicked doors down, and most of them were and are. Reminds me of Jerry Clower's statement at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Why does a Marine think he can whoop any five regular people? Because he can. But you see, that's not God's ways. God's way is to reconcile to himself a wayward remnant. And by reconciling that wayward remnant to himself, they would faithfully proclaim the good news that Christ had died and Christ had risen and Christ would come again and begin the process of God gathering to himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to be a kingdom of priests, living stones in a temple that is to bring glory to God in the midst of all the raging opposition that still exists. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that the king of these horns, the one who reigns over all of the nations that are opposed to God, he has been put on a chain. He is bound as Jesus said he was doing in his earthly ministry. And so we wait. We trust that God will defeat all his enemies and ours. And by faith, we trust in God's means as well as his ends. Because not by might and not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. There's a hymn that reminds me and perhaps reminds all of us of this. It's a hymn familiar to many of you and probably very dear to most of you. In the cross of Christ I glory. The next line, towering o'er the wrecks of time. Broken horns of self-glorifying, self-worshipping emperors and presidents and kings so that King Jesus, who is Christ the King, as your church name so well relates, will reign over all. And so Hebrews 12 says, We live in a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, to see with the eyes that you have given us through your word, that we might not try to sort out your foes and friends by sight, but by faith. Help us to be patient as you will complete your victory, which was sealed in your son's resurrection. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.